So our title of the message today is To the Glory of God and the Good of Others. Uh, With these verses that Angie just read, we come to the conclusion of this section that began in the first verse of the eighth chapter. And so this has been a, you know, quite, quite, quite a journey through these chapters. I think I mentioned it. Uh, somebody said to me last week afterward, they said, wow, I, I just had no idea there was so much in these chapters. Normally when I come to these chapters, I just read over them quickly so I could get to the next, um, you know, next thing that's coming along. And, and sometimes we do that. And yet it's important to take our time, it's important to slow down, and really seek to understand what it is that God is wanting to speak to us about. So in these chapters, Paul has argued, he's argued a number of different things, but they all center around this one issue, eating sacrificial food at the temple meals That's what some were doing. They were eating sacrificial food, food that was sacrificed to idols. So Paul's conclusion here is that that for the Christian is absolutely forbidden because it involves the worship of idol demons. But marketplace idol food is another matter altogether. So remember we talked about this, the the quandary that the early Christians would find themselves in would be that they lived in an utterly pagan society. And everything was about idols. It was, idolatry was the air that everyone breathed. So how do Christians navigate these idolatrous cultures? And so on the one hand, like we just said, Paul says, okay, going into an idol's temple and eating, no, we don't do that uh, because there's a demonic connection. But on the other hand, what about food that's sold in the marketplace? Because you couldn't hardly get anything in the marketplace that had not been dedicated to an idol. So how do we deal with that? Now, what I want to note here is that Paul was not a rigid fundamentalist. He knew that things needed to be understood and evaluated in their context. So there's different context. It's it's all food that's been sacrificed to idols, but, but there are different contexts. So in one context, he says, absolutely not, that's forbidden. But in other contexts, he has wisdom, he has flexibility, he understands the, the challenges and the difficulties, and so he instructs them differently. So <clears throat> I said, Paul was not a rigid fundamentalist. What do I mean by rigid fundamentalism? I'll come back to that in a moment. But first, let's just look at the text itself. So, verse 23, I have the right to do anything you say. Most newer translations, and we are using the NIV, 
and this is a 2011 translation. Most newer translations see these words as something the Corinthians said in response to Paul's efforts to correct them rather than Paul stating his own understanding of things. Now, if you have a New King James Version, if you have um, a King James Version for that matter, even if you have an NASB, it, it's, it doesn't make it clear that this was something the Corinthians were saying. But I do think that that is what's happening here. This is what they were saying based upon their misinterpreting of Paul. We'll come to that in a moment. But their attitude was, uh, I have the right to do anything. Now, side note, Paul had received written correspondence from the Corinthians that he sometimes is responding to. So they might have actually stated this in some of the written correspondence. In chapter seven, he says, now concerning the things that you wrote me about, so he's, he's responding to things that they've written to him about. Another thing to note is that Paul wrote them another letter that has been lost to history. So there were actually three letters to the Corinthian church, not just two. But the third one, as I said, is lost to history, and obviously God did not... Um, see that it needed to be in the canon, and so we don't have to worry about it. It's just something to note that there was another letter. Now, as I said, I have the right to do anything. That's what they were saying. So what they're doing here is they are subtly misrepresenting Paul. They are subtly misrepresenting his teaching on grace. And they're doing that to allow for some of their bad behavior. So as Paul is challenging them on things, and if you remember, if we go back to the sixth chapter where the other issue of sexuality he delves deeply into with them, and their, their response to him was basically the same thing. Their response was, hey, we have the right to do anything. We're, we're saved by grace. But as I said, they're misinterpreting Paul. But it's interesting, he doesn't even argue with them about it. In a sense, he gives them a pass. So he says to them, uh, you know, you're not to engage in um, dining in the idol's temples. Their response is, we have the right to do anything. Because after all, Paul, you taught us that we are saved by grace. And so it's interesting, though, that, like I said, he kind of just passes over that. But then he retorts with, but not everything is beneficial. Not everything is constructive and we are to consider others before ourselves. So rather than argue with them about the technicalities of you know, what you can and cannot do as a person saved by grace, he just takes them to this very practical reality 
that not everything is beneficial, not everything is constructive. Our objective as God's people is to be growing in our faith and to be being conformed to the image of Jesus. So technically, okay, you might uh, be able to say, well, I'm not under the law, I'm under grace, so those things don't apply to me. But here's the question. Is what you're doing beneficial to your spiritual life? Is what you're doing constructive to your spiritual life? Is what you're doing going to help others grow in their faith or is what you're doing going to stumble others? That's what he's saying. And so, as we go on, in verse 25, here's where we see Paul's wisdom and grace. So, He's going to address now this this universal problem, food sold in the meat market. Here's what he says. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So this is Paul's answer. So you said we can't eat in the temples, but you know everything is dedicated to idols. What do we do? He says, just when you go to the meat market, buy the meat, don't ask any questions, just take it home and eat it. Now, <clears throat> as I said, Paul was not a rigid fundamentalist because a rigid fundamentalist would never have allowed for this to happen. Excuse me. He knew, Paul knew, things needed to be understood and evaluated in their context. And so, what do I mean by rigid fundamentalism? A rigid fundamentalism could maybe be just easily defined as a Pharisaical Christianity. Now, Pharisaical is connected to the Pharisees. What do we know about the Pharisees? We know that they were the ultimate legalist. But we know that they were also hypocritical. Jesus said this to them, and this is kind of, kind of defines what uh, rigid fundamentalism is all about. You strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. <laughs> so that, that's what we're talking about here. Rigid fundamentalism. Now, I want to tell you, this is the direction that we're going this morning completely surprised me (laughs) because I had a totally different track in mind that I was going to go on with these verses. But as I sat down and as I was reading over the text, Paul's wisdom and his understanding of grace and his understanding that things needed to be contextualized, that really stood out to me. Because rigid fundamentalism is a problem. It has been a problem throughout the history of the church, and it is still a problem today. But let me give a further definition. Historian George Marsden wrote in his book, which is entitled Reforming Fundamentalism, He wrote this. He said, fundamentalism warped the Christian message 
by majoring on the minor in its demand for separation as a mark of the Christian life. As fundamentalists stressed the big five sins, smoking, drinking, dancing, card playing, and theater attendance, they neglected the weightier fruits of the Spirit. He said much more, but I just want you to get the gist of what we're talking about here. So so this is a a definition of fundamentalism. Now, let let me say, fundamentalism, anytime you have an ism, it's kind of a negative thing. So we would be considered fundamentalist in the sense that the, in, the, in the best understanding of the word, fundamentalist means that we, we hold to the fundamentals of the faith. And we do. But there is a distinction between fundamentalist and fundamentalism. Sometimes it's not made in the culture. Sometimes it's just blended together. Um, but we need to understand that, that we're talking about different things. So, so in one sense, you could say that we are fundamental, but we don't want to be, I promise you, we don't want to be engaged in a rigid fundamentalism. So here's the thing. The fundamentalist cannot recognize, hold on to your seat here, that smoking, drinking, dancing, card playing, and theater attendance could happen in a context that would not be sinful. (laughs) Now maybe you're thinking, wait, what? How could that be? Now, because those things were and still can be in certain contexts associated with other actual sinful behaviors, they became taboo for Christians. Now, now fundamentalism had its heyday um, kind of mid-20th century. Remember, this church was born in the era of fundamentalism, but it was God's response to fundamentalism. Because you remember hearing the stories about how when the hippies started to roll in, a lot of people wanted to lock the doors. But Pastor Chuck had enough wisdom to recognize, wait, God's doing something here. And, you know, there's the story about the carpet and they're coming in with their bare feet and they're dirtying the new carpet. And Chuck's response was, well, hey, let's just pull the carpet out then if that's a problem. But the world, the Christian world, so much of it was engaged in a rigid fundamentalism at the time. So here's the rationale. Since the entertainment industry was... Oh, wait, back up. Fundamentalism operates on the principle of guilt by association. And again, remember, we're talking about uh, a pharisaical thing. Thank you. We're talking about a pharisaical thing. So what did the Pharisees constantly do to Jesus? They accused him of things, and they saw him as guilty because of his associations. Jesus hung around with the wrong people. 
as far as they were concerned, and therefore he could not possibly be the Messiah. So fundamentalism operates on the principle of guilt by association. So since smoking, drinking, dancing, card playing happened in the nightclubs and so forth, which did often facilitate other forms of sinful activity, those things then became sinful. Since the entertainment industry was run by corrupt men and most actors and actresses lived sinful lives behind the scenes, the theater became off limits for Christians. So this is what happened in that fundamentalist culture. Now, let me give you an example that's more up to date of where you would see fundamentalism today. Uh, There's other examples, but I'll just use this one. In our time, you see it in something like certain Christians banning Harry Potter because of its storyline being set around warlocks and witches, not even considering the sacrificial redemptive plot line that runs through the story where Harry gives his life to save his friends. See, there's, there's a whole other thing going on if you look below the surface, not to mention that Harry Potter is fiction and fantasy. But a rigid fundamentalism would say that those books need to be burned. Now, Paul, thank God, was not like that. So here's the thing we need to know. These distortions, these pharisaical manifestations of what most people think are the Christian faith are not found in the New Testament. This is not what the New Testament teaches. Paul was not like that, and we see it here in what he's doing with the issue of idols. Now, as a matter of fact, when Paul spoke to the philosophers on Mars Hill in Athens, you remember the story there in in, uh, Acts chapter 17, Paul is on Mars Hill. He's in Athens. He goes into Athens. He sees that the city is completely given over to idolatry. He he sees an altar to the unknown God. And he's brought before the philosophers and he says, you know what, I'm gonna talk to you about the unknown God. Now, here's an interesting thing. He quoted these words to them from a well-known poet of his day. And we, if we know our Bibles, we know these words, right? In him we live and move and have our being. How many of you know that verse? In him we live and move and have our being. Now, Paul applied them to the unknown God who was the true God. But, listen to this, they were originally applied to Zeus. The poet was not talking about the true God, he was talking about Zeus. But you see, if Paul was a fundamentalist, he never could have used that in reference to the true God. So, some in Paul's time were abusing their liberty, that's what we've seen with the uh, eating in the idol's temple, but others would tend more toward restricting people's liberty by forbidding them from eating meat at all or eating in the home of unbelieving idolaters. So these these are the issues here. Same issue, but two different extreme positions, and Paul is in neither place. Paul balances things out with wisdom and grace. 
Look at verse 25 through 30. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions for conscience, uh, raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I am referring to the other person's conscience, not to yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So what you see here is the the wisdom and the grace that Paul exercises. Now, I want to go back to the five big sins. Smoking, drinking, card playing, dancing. The mistake that was made by the fundamentalist was because these things had an association with sometimes sinful things, that the things themselves were then considered sinful. So they had no ability to see that these things in a different context might not be sinful. Now, I don't know what you think about smoking. I don't smoke. I don't think smoking's sinful. I've never thought smoking was sinful. Is it unhealthy? Yes, absolutely. But, but obviously there was a time when, when th- this was thought. I remember, was just, I just had this flashback. When Char was a little boy, I had to go get the tire repaired for the car, something, I can't remember what it was. And he was probably, I don't know, maybe four. And so him and I are there, we're getting the tire fixed, and the guy who's fixing the tire is smoking. And he looks at me and he goes, Dad, that guy's smoking. <laughs> yes, he is, son. Tell him, Dad. <laughs> Tell him he needs Jesus. <laughs> now, remember, he's four years old. He's learned this from somebody. <laughs> Who did he learn this from? <laughs> I had a season of being a rigid fundamentalist, actually, myself. <laughs> but, but smoking. Let me, let me give you a couple of interesting uh, illustrations here. Charles Spurgeon, the great, probably the greatest preacher of his era, one of the greatest preachers in all of history, Victorian era preacher, Charles Spurgeon. He, um, he smoked cigars. He drank brandy daily. Uh, He was accused one time of being excessive in his smoking. And he responded to the person that he was not at all excessive. He only smoked one cigar at a time. (laughs) So, So that's what he thought about the restriction against smoking cigars. Another great preacher of another generation, D.M. Lloyd-Jones, who also 
preached in London, had a worldwide impact. He smoked cigarettes. And if you read his, uh, the, the biography that was written by Ian Murray on him, and there's, there's photographs. There's one photograph where he is posing, uh, you know, as the preacher for the picture, and as you look at the picture, he's got a cigarette in his hand. Now, he actually did quit smoking. He was a doctor. He was a medical doctor as well. He, he did quit smoking, not because even at that time they understood the, the, the detrimental uh, effects of, of tobacco, but he stopped smoking because he felt like he was in bondage to it and he didn't want to be in bondage to anything. Now, drinking. Drinking. I'm going to bypass all of the examples I could give us and go straight to Jesus himself. Jesus turned water into wine. Fundamentalists have insisted that the wine was so diluted with water it could never have possibly gotten anybody drunk. That is a fundamentalist myth. It just isn't true. Jesus made real wine, the kind of stuff that if you drank it in excess, you would get drunk. And not only did Jesus make wine, Jesus drank wine with his friends. And remember, Jesus was accused by who? The rigid fundamentalists, the Pharisees, of being a drunkard. Why? Well, Jesus wasn't a drunkard but he did drink wine. So, you see, fundamentalism just cannot imagine that there's any context where these things could not be sinful. But we know Jesus didn't sin. He was without sin. So obviously, you can drink without sin. I have to tell this story. So, Pastor Chuck, you know, he grew up in very much a fundamentalist environment, and he would tell stories about it all the time. He'd tell stories about one time he went to a movie theater, and he was absolutely certain that the end of the world was going to take place before the film ended, and he was going to be left behind because he had gone to the, to the theater. <laughs> That's fundamentalism. But he also would often talk about, you know, the fact that he'd never tasted a drop of liquor and so forth. And, and there was this, a season where he, somebody had influenced him and he got into this thing about how the wine was really more water than wine. And I'll never forget, Cheryl and I were over at the house one night and we we're having dinner with, with Chuck and Kay. And Chuck started talking, he started going on, and I don't even know how we came on the topic of wine, but you know, somehow it came up. And he started giving us the spiel about how you know, the, Bible, the, the wine in the Bible couldn't, wouldn't really get you drunk because it was so diluted and all this stuff. And in the middle of his explanation, all of a sudden, my mother-in-law shouts, Chuck, that is ridiculous. <laughs> it was real wine. End of the debate. But, you know, this is the thing. I mean, this, this, 
this kind of fundamentalism can so permeate your being that you become somewhat irrational. Dancing. So again, I mean, you know, there are people that grew up, maybe you grew up with this kind of a background where dancing was a sin. In any context, didn't matter what the context was. You couldn't even dance in your living room with your wife alone. So, is there a place where you could dance and not be sinning? Well, you could dance in your living room with your wife at your child's wedding reception. I think you could dance at your school prom. And I think you could even take your wife out dancing if you'd like to. Because again, they, because these things happened in, a, in one context that was sinful, then the thing became sinful, but the thing is not sinful. <laughs> Move it to a different context and it's not sinful. Now, obviously, some things are sinful in any context. And the Bible makes that clear what those things are. But none of these are in that category. Card playing, associated with gambling and so forth. But listen, I know guys that play cards with their buddies on Friday night, and Jesus is right there in the midst with them. They're just brothers. And they're having a great time. And finally, I think we all probably understand that it's okay to go to a good movie or a theater production. But there have been generations of Christians that did not think that. And there probably are some in certain places today that still do not think that. And the reason is, is because they have been uh, influenced by not a biblical Christian understanding of these things, not a Pauline understanding of these things, not a Jesus understanding of these things, but by a cultural, legalistic, pharisaical understanding of these things. And so Paul, he gives us the key to it all. And the key is this. Verse 31 whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do it all for the glory of God. Now, you can't sin for the glory of God. <laughs> so he's not talking about anything sinful. Augustine said this. He said, love God and do what you want. For some people, that sounds scary. What? What? Love God and do what you want. Well, what Augustine meant was, if you really love God, you'll do the things that please him and stay away from the things that don't. So it's that simple. Love God and do what you want. Now, I want to look at something here. When Paul says in verse 29... When he's talking about this thing of conscience, I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not to yours. And then he asks these two questions. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? Now, Bible translators and commentators honestly do not really understand. The, the Greek here is complicated, evidently. I don't know Greek, so I can't speak for that. But, but according to the authorities who do know Greek, they said, this is a complicated uh, Greek sentences here. 
So it's hard to understand, you know, what is Paul really getting at? Here's what I think Paul is saying. I think what Paul is, is he's putting himself in the position of the person who's limit, who, who has to limit their freedom because of the conscience of somebody else. And the person is saying, well, that's not fair. That doesn't seem fair. But the point is, it's not fair. But the bigger point is, it's not about fairness. It's about love. And love sometimes costs. Love sometimes costs you freedom. Sometimes because of love, you just have to say, well, you know, I know that this isn't wrong and, you know, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, but because of these other people who don't understand that, I'm going to limit my freedom. Now, you probably remember a few weeks ago, I made a statement Uh, that caused a lot of people to get upset. But before I dive into that for a moment, look at verse 32. Do not cause anyone to stumble or be offended, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. Jews and Greeks, note this. We know who Jews are. Greeks are unbelievers. The church of God, we understand who that is. That's us. Paul's saying, do, the, do your best to not offend any group. So in other words, he's concerned that we might offend unbelievers. Offend them in a way that would discredit the gospel in their eyes. That's what he's concerned about. And he says, don't do it. So a few weeks ago, I made this statement. I'll read to you what I said. You'll remember it. I think of how many in the church during the height of COVID missed an opportunity to do, every, or to do the very thing Paul is saying he does here, laying down his rights. I'm afraid that some Christians were more concerned with making sure that no one was trampling on their rights than with showing love to their neighbor by putting on a mask. This caused a whole lot of people to go ballistic and to renounce me as a leftist heretic. Well, let me say it again. Some in the church, through their unwillingness to comply within reason to the COVID protocols, have stumbled others and given the church a bad reputation. That is a fact. It's not imaginary. It is a reality. Now, listen. I know, I know, I know. I know that there has been tons of misinformation about the virus. I get it. I know there have been a few cases where there has been government overreach. I know that. I know that approximately 98% of people with COVID recover. 
I'm not stupid. I know all that. But I also know that many have died. Many have died and many are still vulnerable. I was out of town this week, some of you know. I got a text from Brian Perez. If you listen to the radio, you know who Brian Perez is. And Brian sent me a text about a mutual friend and he said, hey, so-and-so, who is probably at the oldest 40, is in the hospital, he's in ICU with COVID. Wow, in ICU with COVID. I was in Colorado this week and I was uh, gathering with my uh, study cohort and, and at the end of, of the week, I was driving back to the Denver airport and I stopped and visited some friends who pastor a church in a place called Longmont. And um, they were missionaries in Hungary for many, many years. And when they were there, they adopted uh, a young a boy. Uh, and so he became their adopted son. He's 27 years old now. And he almost died of COVID a few months ago. So anyway, I saw him the other day and I said, man, I heard about what happened and I was praying for you and all of that. So all, all of this to say, um, you know, th this is a real thing. Regardless of those other things, it's still a real thing. And I think that our position is to graciously take precautions by reasonable compliance and setting aside certain rights for the sake of others, this is the kind of things Paul is talking about here in these verses. Now, he's obviously not talking specifically about this issue, but it's these kinds of things. Things where we would feel like, you know, it's not fair. I mean, these people don't even know what they're talking about. One week they tell us this, the next week they tell us that. And they keep moving the goalpost. And you know, all the stuff that's gone, that's happened over the last year and a half, this has driven me nuts, just like anybody else. But at the same time, I, I, can, I can think it's unfair. Why is my liberty judged by another person's conscience? Well, just because it is sometimes. Because, like I said, it's not about fairness. It's about love. And that is the point that Paul is making. And so he says, even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many so that they may be saved. And this is hearkening back to what he said in the ninth chapter. I become all things to all people that I might by all means win some. So we have to think beyond our own momentary comfort, our own momentary preferences, and we have to think about the bigger picture. And that there are times, like Paul is saying here, where we lay down our rights even though we can build a case that it would be stupid to do it. And of course, he brings us back around to our great example. Follow my example 
as I follow the example of Christ. Paul is saying, this is what I do. And I'm calling you to do this as well. And let me remind you, this is what Jesus did. And so, you see, this is, this is why we have to take our cues from Scripture, not from the culture. What is God saying in his word? And this is why we have to look closely at his word because it, 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 it would be easy to read over these passages and, and never stop to consider what is actually going on here. But as I'm saying, what is going on here is Paul is showing the incredible wisdom of God in navigating challenging and difficult things. And so, let me close. I quoted this verse a couple weeks ago, but let me do it again because I, I've, I've always loved this verse, but the NIV translation, I just, I just think it's the greatest thing. It's Philippians 2. We're familiar with it. Speaking of Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Man, if Jesus did it, then we are called to follow his example. That's what Paul says here. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us. Lord, give us understanding. Lord, these are nuanced things that we're talking about here today, so... And Lord, I just think back of Augustine's word, love God and do what you want. And Lord, may that be the way we live. May our hearts be dedicated to pleasing you and not ourselves. And in loving you, we will do those things that glorify you. Lord, help us to think in terms of the glory of God and the good of others rather than in terms of my preference, my comfort, what I want. Help us, Lord. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.